Um, if you would do me a favor, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can take the Bible that is in the pew back in front of you and turn to page 926. If you do not own a Bible, um, if you don't have a Bible, um, that Bible is yours. You can take it, you can keep it, you can write in it, highlight in it. Here at the chapel, we study God's word. Um, we've been in a series, right? A good short series, right? You're laughing. We have guests. Do not laugh at the preacher. No, we've been in a really long series in the book of Acts, and we find ourselves today in Acts chapter 17. We're going to talk about the whole chapter, um, um, but we're going to focus our attention in verses 16 to 31, so to speak. Um, the reason why we're focusing on that, because the first sort of the 16 uh, chapters and some subsequent verses in that passage are narrative. It's explaining what Paul is doing. So where do we find ourselves? So we've been talking about the book of Acts. We've said that the main character in the book of Acts is not the apostles. It's not Paul. It's not Peter. It's not John. It's not Timothy. It's not Silas. It's not even the church in Jerusalem. The main character of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is moving. He is moving in the church of Jerusalem that is forcing them to go out to the nations. And now we find ourselves in Acts 17 where Paul has been saved. He's being used by God. He's on his second missionary journey and he's going to preach the gospel ferociously. So he goes to Thessalonica in the first couple of verses. And this is what happens in Thessalonica, as was his custom. He goes to preach, and where does he go to first? He goes to the synagogues, right? Because why not go to the people who are closely theologically connected to the God we serve? So he goes to the synagogues, and they're like, uh, no, Jack, get out. We don't want you here. That, we don't believe in that. So they kick him out, and and here's what they do. Typically, this is what happens. He goes to preach in the synagogues. They don't like what he says, so they stir up people in the cities, and they try to either kill him, persecute him, and kick him out. But something interesting happens in verse 6. I think it's interesting because of how the people described Paul. Look at verse 6 with me. And this is how unbelievers described Paul. And when they could not find him, meaning Paul, at this time, Paul's now, the people that were with him said, you got to go, we got to hide you, you need to leave for your protection, not because we don't want you here, but for your protection. Um, They dragged Jason, Jason was a believer in the city, and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, take note of this, shouting what? These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. How would you like to be described as the person who turned the world upside down? And you know the truth is about Paul? He wasn't turning the world upside down. He was turning it right side up through the gospel. Like his goal and the goal of the church should be to show the world, an unbelieving world full of idols and idolatry, right? That their way, their practice is the wrong way. And the right way is in the way of the gospel. It's a powerful statement, in my opinion, that they make about Paul and his companions. So Paul's forced to leave Thessalonica because he was turning the world upside down. 
and then he goes to Berea. Berea is a city which accepts the gospel. In fact, in that section, if you look in verse 10 and on, um, they accept the gospel. They're like, oh, this is interesting. We want to learn more. And there were many believers that came from the preaching of the gospel. But here's what happens. The people in Thessalonica find out that he's in Berea, and they're like, we can't do that. We can't let someone turn the world upside down or right side up. We're going to persecute them. So he, they go to Berea to persecute Paul. So Paul leaves, his companions, he leaves, and then he, he tells Timothy and Silas, hey, I need you to come. I'm in Athens now. Now, I mean, how many of you know who, where Athens is at, right? This is in Greece. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And look what Paul observes. Look at verse 16 really quickly with me. Paul arrives in Athens, and he walks around the city, and this is what Luke says he does. As while... Now, while Paul was waiting for them, talking about Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. What? He was provoked? His spirit was provoked? What does that mean? Paul, Paul was provoked, meaning that he, he was aroused to anger. This is not a sinful anger. This is a righteous anger. Why was he provoked? Why was he angry when he arrives to Athens? Well, it tells us the reason why he was angry and provoked because of what he saw, what he witnessed. What did he witness? He witnessed the city full of idols. He witnessed with a righteous indignation a feeling that stirred up in him that people were wayward. And not only just like not worshiping and, 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 and giving worship and honor to the one true God, it's that they were so wayward that were worshiping something else. They were robbing God of his glory, of his power, diminishing his attributes and who he is to statues. The title of today's sermon is A City of Idols. So what happens? So he walks around, provoked in his spirit with all the idolatry, so he preaches the gospel in the marketplace, and there are philosophers there, right? This is Athens. This is, Athens is a city, right, known for its, its not only Greek mythology, not known for its um, prestigious um, uh, buildings and monuments, but it's known for their, their education and intellect and philosophical way of thinking about people and the world and God and the gods, so they see him preaching, and they're like, oh, this sounds cool. He's preaching a foreign thing that we want to learn, a strange thing, different from what we've heard before. So why don't we invite him to Mars Hill? Mars Hill was the place in which the city gathered to talk about philosophy, to theorize about the world, and also either to execute judgment and authority over the city. So and they invite him to Mars Hill, and this is his little sermonette, look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observed the objects of your worship, notice what he says. He doesn't say statues. He doesn't say gods. He says the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he has needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek him. Look at that. That they should seek him and perhaps... Operative word, right? Perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Let's pause right there. What do you think Paul was observing when he was walking through the city? What do you think he saw, right? Like, if you've ever been to, to Greece, I've never been. I've just seen the pictures and talked about it in school, right? But, like, like, we know that Athens was a great, beautiful city that they built monuments, citadel, citadels, Right? Beautiful buildings in honor of the Greek gods, in honor of their wisdom, right? In honor of their patron goddess, Athena, the god of wisdom and war and, and crafts, right? What do you think he saw? He saw beyond just the monuments. He saw beyond the buildings and the citadels. You know what he saw? He saw people gathered together to worship those statues that they've created. He saw people come together and make sacrifices to these idols that had no power, that had no authority. And he saw an inscription of a statue that said to the unknown God. This made me think. You know, just like the Athenians worship idols, we too worship our own idols. You know why? Because we all have to live for something. The Athenians lived for something. They lived for their wisdom. They lived for their prestige, their wealth, their power, their influence. They lived for their philosophy, their way of thinking. They lived for their idols. They lived for the things that they've created. And I think that's also true for us, that we too have idols. You might be sitting there and saying, no, I don't have any idols. Yes, you do. Trust me, you do. I do, right? Like, why do you think God gives the Ten Commandments to his people, right? Exodus chapter 20, and God spoke all these words to them saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice that he says the house of slavery, right? Slave to the gods and slave to other people. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make of yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. Why do you think God gave the Ten Commandments and the first two commandments is that you should not worship any idols? It's because our hearts always, our hearts will always create idols. We will always seek something more important than God. That is the nature of our sin. We will seek to find value and worth in something or someone other than God. That's how sin works. Sin will always lead us away from Jesus. Sin will always lead us away from his word to something else or to someone else. Because we find our value and worth in something else. 
We all have idols because our hearts are prone to create them. Now, we may not in a little sense bow down to statues, right? They, in Athens, they bow down and worship statues. And in, in the Old Testament, they worship a, a golden calf. Like, like we're not, we don't have any idols here, right? There are no statues in this building where we pay homage to, right? But, but there are idols of our hearts that we bow down to, meaning that we allow our affections and our hearts to be stirred by the very thing that is supposed to be good for our good, but not the ultimate good. We allow our hearts and our minds to, to be influenced and overwhelmed by the things of this world instead of the things of the Lord because our hearts are prone to it. Now, you may be thinking, I'm a Christian. I don't have idols. Yes, you do. It's your children. It's your spouse, right? Like, right? like when, when you look at some of the idols in your hearts, right? it could be your family, that you find your dignity and worth in your children and their successes, right? This is why you see videos on social media of parents having fights at soccer games because they can't help themselves, right? Like, this is why parents, like, are so invested in sports because they think their child is the next LeBron or the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. Don't, don't. We know you can't talk back to the preacher, right? Everything I say is true, so you just have to accept it, right? But why do you think parents are so invested in their children, right? They will give up every Sunday morning to take their kids to a baseball practice and a basketball practice because they find their identity in their child. Now, those things are good, right? I'm not saying those things are bad. What I'm saying is that when those things and our children, our family become the ultimate good, that's an idol. Our education can be an idol. We look at what we know and how we've achieved it. We, we can have idols at our job, right? Like, I am, I am necessary for this company to flourish. So I'm going to devote all my energy and time neglecting my family, my friends, and my church, and my faith so that I can be successful. Materialism can be an idol, Right? I want to look a certain way. I want to have a certain house in a certain neighborhood so people know that I have money. I find my identity and worth in materialism and what I have because it shows the world that I have arrived. Race and culture can be an idol, right? Where you find your identity in your cultural and, 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 and racial ideology. We're superior. We're better. Our moral or ethics for Christians, right, can be our, 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 our idol. I've checked off the spiritual boxes. I've read my Bible. I've, I've prayed. I've gone to church. I've tithed, and I volunteered. I have arrived. I find value and worth in that, and I am a good Christian. My good works have saved me. That can be an idol as well. You, you can make anything that's good, and all those things that I've mentioned are good things, but when you make them the most important thing, that's when you have bowed down in your heart to worship that thing, when you have found value and worth in those things. You know another reason why I think we struggle with idolatry? I think God has put eternity in our hearts. 
I think we all long for something more than this world. And for many people, in fact, the vast majority of people can't see it. They can't know it unless the Lord intervenes and reveals it to them. But eternity is in our hearts. We long for something more. So what do idols do? Why do idols become the object of our worship? It's because they give us a false and cheap substitution of God. And, and I think that's what happens here in, in Athens. And this is what Paul's going to talk about, right? Like, like idols give us a false and cheap substitution of God. We look to the thing to give us value and worth. We look to the thing to give us peace, joy, patience, and gentleness, self-control. We look to the thing, right, to bring happiness and contentment. We look to the person to fulfill us. This is why the next generation suffer from fear and anxiety because they're looking for the next best thing. They find their identity in the next best thing. And the next best thing isn't materialism, isn't social media, isn't wealth or success. It's Jesus Christ. But they use these other things as a cheap substitute. And what happens with a cheap substitute? It leaves you empty and wanting more and unsatisfied. So you want more and you want more, right? Like someone who finds their identity in relationships looks for love in all the wrong places and they keep looking for love and they keep looking for love and they keep looking for love and they become anxious and fearful because they haven't found love. And when they do find it, they try to control it and manipulate it. And then when they lose it, the world has ended. Why? Because they made the thing the ultimate good. Paul's doing the same thing here to the Athenians. He's going to show them, right, that their pursuit of pleasure, their pursuit of wisdom, their desire for self-sufficiency and superiority, right, like has overshadowed and has overshadowed the glory of God. Their pursuit for, for life's pleasure has overshadowed the truth about God. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to present to them the truth and oneness of God. In fact, what he's going to do is he's going to turn their perspectives right side up by, by presenting to them the truth of the gospel. Why? Why does he want to present this? Because the gospel tears down the idols of our hearts to, authentic, to, to see God for who he really is. You want to tear down? You, listen, we're not here to replace idols, right? We're not here to remove idols. We're here to tear and destroy idols. How do you tear and destroy idols? By the truth of the gospel. And what's the truth about the gospel? He gives us five truths in this passage to show us who the one true God is in light of our idolatry, to help us realize that we ought to serve him, we ought to follow him, we ought to pursue him, and only him. The first truth right, that he presents is that God is the creator of all things. Look at verse 24. You want to tear down the idol of your heart and in your mind? Know that God is the creator of all things. You are not the creator, right? What does Psalms 24 say? I know it in the KJV or new KJV only, that's how I memorized it when I was a kid, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein. For what? He has established it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. 
Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. He that has not lifted up his soul to vanity nor sworn deceitfulness. What is the psalmist saying? That God is the creator of all things. And God's desire is that we would seek him and him alone. We are not the creators of this world. This world and our culture would try to tempt us to believe that we in ourselves have the power to create, right? This has influenced the, the prosperity gospel in many of our churches, right? That there's some power in your words to create and activate the very thing you want to happen. No, God is the creator of all things. He created you in his image. The second truth that Paul wants us to see Right When we're facing the idols of our hearts, is that God is the sustainer of all things. Look at verse 25. God is not served by human hands, as if God needs human beings for sacrifices or religious practices. God, in fact, is the one who provides all we need. Right? That's, that's the difference. In idolatry, right? In, when we have idols, we believe that our idols need us. We, we are the ultimate thing that they need to succeed. And what Paul is saying here, no, God doesn't need us. God has power in himself to do his will without our help. But you know what God does? God wants us. God wants to draw near to us, and he wants us to draw near to him so that we can see him as the creator, so that we can give him glory as the sustainer of the universe not the other way around. The third truth, to tear down the idols of our own hearts. I'm getting worked up and I'm hot, I'm sorry. Can we take a break, intermission? <laughs> sorry, I get, it's, I don't know, it's the thing in me, I don't know, I'm weird, sorry. The third truth that tears down the idols in our hearts is realizing that God reigns over all things. Look at verse 26 and 28, right? God is the ruler and in control. This is what Dan was praying, right? That we ought to know that God had determined in eternity past that we will live in this time. That's beautiful, right? Think about it, that God knitted you in your mother's womb so that you would live in this time where we often look at this world at this horrific place, which it's crazy. It is crazy. Don't get me wrong. We live in a crazy world because we are crazy people, and we are crazy people in a church, right? But, 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 but God has determined that we will live for him now, and there's a purpose, Right? There's a purpose to why we're here. We're not here just to experience the bad things in life, but what are we here to experience? Like, like look, look at there are two things in verse 27 that Paul points us to, right? In light of our idolatry, like when we're tempted to think that somehow, some way, that we are in control and we are in, 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 in control of everything that happens, he shows us that no, it's God is in control. And when you're fearful about the fact that how can God be in control? Why would God be in control? He gives us two reasons why God is in control. God is in control of our destiny and our world now is so that what? Verse 27, we can seek him and find him. Notice how he says, perhaps feel their way towards him. The illustration in the Greek is the idea of a blind person walking in the dark, trying to find who God is. God created us here so that we could seek him, knowing that he's there, even when oftentimes we can't see that he's there. 
That's the purpose of God's rule and reign. Here's our fourth truth. When we're tempted to think, right, in our, our idolatry, look what he says who God is. God is father of all people, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What is he saying here? That we have been created in the image of God. This does not mean that every single person is adopted into God's family. It means that we all, because he is the creator of all things, he is the sustainer of life to all people and all things, because he's in control of everything and every person, he's our father. That we ought not to think that we are superior to other people. We ought to not find our identity in our racial or cultural identity. We are to remember that he was the one that created us in his image, all people. God does not look at us. When he looks down on earth, he doesn't look as Tim the Puerto Rican. I'm Puerto Rican, not Mexican, by the way. I know you guys always say that all the time, just for clarification. Sometimes it's good to just say that. Like, Mexican food is not Puerto Rican food. Anyway, we... Just, just throwing it out there. Right? Like, when he looks down on me, he doesn't say, Tim, the Puerto Rican from New York, the Bronx, home of the best baseball franchise of all time, the Yankees, right? He doesn't look, I don't know. I wanna, I'm like, I want to fight today. Right? He doesn't look down and say, the Puerto Rican, you know who he says? the son that I have adopted into my family where I pour my wrath on his son. That's who he sees. Listen, let the world say, oh, I'm part of this race, this race is superior, you guys are this and you guys are that. Like, let them say that, go ahead. Keep saying it, because one day, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. There is no race, there is no ethnicity that gets not to kneel, everyone will knee. God doesn't see race or ethnicity. He sees people made in his image. So what is Paul doing, right? He's reversing the order. Because here's what idolatry does. Idolatry reverses the order in this way, that it puts man, man's abilities, capabilities, man's thoughts, feelings, and actions above God. It makes everything that we do, everything that we say, more important than God and what God has done. And what Paul's saying, no, you have to see who God is so that you know that you can be in right relationship with him. And the reason why this is important, the reason why you ought to believe that God is creator, sustainer, ruler over everything, and God is father of all people, because God is judge. Look as subsequent verses in verses 29, being, oh, excuse me, not 29, 31. God is judge over all people. Judgment is coming, and God will judge them. That is a harsh truth, but a gracious truth, that one day God will judge every single person on this earth for what they believed and didn't believe. God would judge the world for its wrongly pursuit of other idols and is all, all the misconceptions that we have about God. 
Paul presents, and this is, this is beautiful about Paul, he, he presents beautifully in a loving and gracious way. He's not condemning them, he's meeting them right where they are to show them this is who God truly is and you ought to believe him because he's going to judge. He's going to judge all of us. And for those, remember, who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. So we got nothing to worry about. But those who are not in Christ Jesus, you got something coming. And my encouragement for you this morning, believe, trust. God is gracious and faithful. God is trustworthy. We can trust him. Let me give you two ways. Two ways if in your heart, right, like you're, you're like, Tim, I don't struggle with idolatry. And I'm like, yes, you do. Trust me, you do. Here are two practical ways that I think we see in this passage, not explicitly but implicitly as Paul is showing us, right? Like these are two ways that we can identify our own idols. And the first one is by identifying what we make as the ultimate good that which gives us a false sense of value and worth. Right, like, like, remember those statues that he witnessed, those, the, 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 the monuments, the citadels, the, 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 the pantheon of gods, right, that were represented in, in, in images, right? Like, like think, think about that. Like, people found value and worth in those things, making those things the ultimate good. So we don't do that now, but what in your heart, what in your world, right, do you see that you've made the ultimate good? which has given you a sense of value and worth. Now remember, these things are good. It's when we make them the ultimate good. The second way that we observe we can identify our idols is this way, by identifying what robs God of his glory and deserve worship. If you can look at something and give that thing worship, that's idolatry. Like that's what happened in Exodus when they built the golden calf. They actually built the golden calf in honor of who God is and what ends up happening. They don't end up worshiping God, they end up worshiping the calf. What in your life have you given glory and honor that you have not given the Lord? Now, there is grace, meaning that the whole point of Peter, of Paul's message here, is to expose the idolatry of their hearts that will lead them to Jesus. That would lead them to Jesus. So what is the proper response, right? Like, you have idols in your heart. You, you have worshipped the thing, the, the good thing that God has given us, the creative thing that God has given us, not to worship but to use and, and to bring honor and glory to the Lord. Now that you identify those things or you will identify, what should you do? Well, Paul says it in this passage. He says it in two ways, that we should seek God and repent. That's what he says in verse 30, the time of ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So when you find yourself tempted to idolize something other than God, what should you do? Seek him and repent. That's all you have to do. And the beauty about the gospel is there's nothing more. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to make a sacrifice. You don't have to do nothing. All you have to do is seek God, pursue him, follow him, repent, believe in him, and that's all you have to do. That is the gospel. How beautiful. How easy is that? But you know what they do? Look, look at some, look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, this is how some people mocked 
That's what it says. Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Right? Like, all you have to do is see God and repent, but sometimes people either will mock, believe, or they will investigate. And, and here's a question, another question to ask. Have you been provoked by the idolatry of our world? As you observe our culture and our world, are you provoked like Paul is provoked to see the idolatry, to see visibly the worship of something else other than God? Or have you been callous and desensitized to the idol worship of our world? I'm going to venture to say, and this is true for me, I've been callous. Because it's so easy to get in the routine of believing what the world believes. Because now we live in a day where we want to make everyone happy. And we don't want to be the outliers, right? Like, like the funny thing is about our culture nowadays, like, if you want to be rebellious, like, back in the 80s, if you want to be rebellious, you dyed your hair, you pierced your, your nose, you got a tattoo, and you listen to rock music. Nowadays, it's like, oh, you're normal like everyone. Like, oh, you must be the governor of the state because you're so different, right? Like, like you want to be rebellious in our country? It's be a Christian. Live out your faith. You want to be rebellious? Live out your faith. People will hate you. But are you provoked by the idols of our world that you're willing to identify them not only in your hearts but in this world and say, God, we need you and we need you now. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are good, you are great, you are powerful. And God, we ask for forgiveness. We ask that you would forgive our hearts for the things that we've made more important than you, whether it's the things in our hearts or the things in our minds or the things in our hands. God, would you, in your grace and mercy, reveal that to you so that we, in return, could repent and pursue you and make you the ultimate good. God, would you do this? And God, I pray for our country, and I pray for our cities and our nation. God, would we turn back to you? Would we call upon the name of the Lord so that we can be saved? And God, let this be a church, a people of God who not only identify our own idols, but speak against the idols of this world. Speak against it through the gospel in a gracious and loving way. We pray this in Christ's name, and the people of God say, This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.